0: As a reminder, this podcast is made by cardiology fellows to enhance the educational experience in the CVICU. The content is not verified by host or speakers, and the content provided by this podcast is not intended as medical advice. All opinions represented are our own and do not represent the opinions of our employer. Welcome to CVICU On The Go, an educational podcast focused on key topics relevant to the management of CVICU patients. Today, we're going to talk about the approach to recognizing and managing complications of myocardial infarction, and we are super excited to have Dr. Jared O'Leary joining us today as our expert discussant. Dr. O'Leary is an interventional cardiologist here at Vanderbilt and has several different leadership roles. Not only is he the Associate Program Director of the Interventional Cardiology Fellowship, but he's also the co-medical director of our cardiovascular ICU. So he's really the perfect person to walk us through a discussion of CVICU patient management. Dr. O'Leary, thanks for being here today. Of course, Summer. Happy to be here. All right. So let's get started with our case. Mrs. W is a 72-year-old woman with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, and active tobacco use who presents to an outside hospital with progressive chest pain that began 12 hours prior to presentation. EMS reports that she received sublingual nitroglycerin for her chest pain en route, which precipitously decreased her blood pressure. At the outside hospital, she is found to have an inferior STEMI and receives lytics, as she is too far from the nearest cath-capable hospital. She is being transferred from the outside hospital to the Vanderbilt CCU and will be under your care as the resident. So while she is being transferred, you start to think about the potential complications that may arise from her inferior MI. So, Jared, I wanted to start off by asking you, what framework should residents keep in mind to categorize the many different post-MI complications?
1: So, I think the first thing to keep in mind is is being aware of which patients are going to be at risk. Uh, This case that you just described is a perfect setup for a possible MI complication, uh, specifically mechanical complications. It's an elderly female with no prior MI and a history of hypertension who is presenting relatively late after development of symptoms. That's a classic setup for complications. Ironically, the history of uh, diabetes has been associated with possible protective effect against mechanical complications. So the first thing I think is just recognizing that this patient is definitely at risk. Uh, Now, the development of hypotension is the tip-off here. Uh, The majority of MI patients are not hypotensive. So this makes you think uh, there may be a complication. Uh, You can then think about uh, mechanical versus electrical versus non-myocardial complications. And mechanical can be further divided as uh, mechanical complications with rupture and unruptured complications. Uh, So for the classic mechanical rupture uh, phenomenon, uh, there are papillary uh, muscle rupture causing acute MR, VSD, and free wall rupture. For the most part, these are true medical emergencies. Your best friend is going to be the echo machine in in one of these cases. Uh, They'll typically not be immediate complications. They classically occur on about day three of the MI after the full effect of inflammation has set in in the myocardium. Uh, So if we just think about each of them uh, one by one, papillary muscle rupture will will create torrential uh, mitral regurgitation. The murmur may be subtle uh, due to near-immediate equalization of pressures from the LV to the LA, and the patient will be in respiratory distress with pulmonary edema typically. A ventricular septal defect uh, often looks different. They may be hypotensive and dyspneic, but not typically hypoxemic. Uh, The murmur is usually prominent and often with a thrill, the patient will often uh, prefer to lay flat in direct distinction to acute MR uh, where the patient will be sitting bolt upright. It's a classic board question, a new murmur post-MI. So you're thinking about MR and thinking about VSD. If they're sitting up and in respiratory distress, that's MR. If they're laying flat and hypotensive but not in respiratory distress, that's likely a VSD. So then the last uh, ruptured complication is free wall rupture. It's usually a diagnosis made at autopsy unfortunately. Uh, there are reports in the literature of um, uh, patients complaining of vagal type symptoms with nausea and bradycardia uh, followed by immediate hemodynamic collapse. Um, you can have contained ruptures uh, with some blood and clot in the pericardium, and you need to think
0: about this if you have a pericardial fusion uh, post MI. Okay, so just to summarize, the patients who are at higher risk for MI complications are typically your elderly patients presenting late after their first MI. The mechanical issues to be aware of include ruptures versus non-ruptures, with ruptures typically occurring late, a few days post-MI. So the three rupture complications to remember are pap muscle infarct resulting in acute mitral regurgitation, VSD, and free wall rupture. And the key to differentiating MR from VSD is that MR patients are usually in respiratory distress, sitting both upright and hypoxic, and may or may not have a murmur. Whereas VSDs don't usually present with hypoxia, patients are typically laying flat instead of upright, and the murmur is pretty prominent. Okay, so what about non-ruptured mechanical complications?
1: So those are the ruptured complications. Next on on my list would be the non-ruptured complications, which would be RV infarct, ischemic MR without papillary rupture, uh, papillary muscle rupture, outflow tract obstruction, uh, and I would also add severe LV dysfunction on this list. So RV infarct by itself is rare, but it's fairly common in the context of an inferior MI. As many as a third or so will, will, will present with this. Clinically, they have a classic triad of hypotension, elevated JVP, and yet clear lungs. Uh, in terms of ischemic MR, this can look somewhat like ruptured papillary mus- muscle, but not as severe. Uh, it can improve post vascularization, and so f- uh, therefore, you don't necessarily want to rush those patients off to the OR. Outflow tract obstruction is rare, but is managed totally differently uh, than most complications with fluids and vasoconstrictors, sometimes even beta blockers. Uh, so this needs to be identified. The scenario for this one is a large LAD infarct where the basal anterior and inferior walls are preserved and hyperdynamic trying to compensate and they create obstruction out the LV outflow tract. Uh, the physiology is akin to hypertrophic, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Aneurysm is a complication that's usually seen late. It's important because it is a Common cause of persistently elevated ST segments on the EKG. And then finally, severe LV dysfunction. Uh, While not classically referred to as a complication, I like to think of it that way. Uh, If you see an LVEF that goes from normal to, say, 25%, you need to be thinking, this patient may be in trouble, uh, and
0: watch them very closely. Okay. So I just want to make sure I got this straight. So non-rupture includes really five things. RV infarct, ischemic mitral regurgitation, outflow tract obstruction, LV aneurysm, and LV dysfunction. So your RV infarcts usually occur in the setting of an inferior MI and typically come with a triad of hypotension, clear lungs, and elevated JVP. Ischemic MR is like a milder version of pap muscle rupture. Outflow tract obstruction is usually a large LAD infarct where the mid and distal segments are infarcted, but the basal segments are preserved and hyperdynamic, which can obstruct the outflow tract. So it's sort of like a hokum or Takotsubo's-like picture. Uh, LV aneurysm is a late complication and a known cause of persistent ST elevations. And lastly, a severe drop in LV function is also a high-risk, non-rupture mechanical complication. Okay, so what's next? So that, I think, covers
1: the kind of classic mechanical complications of MI, but uh, there are other things that can uh, happen. The next category that I think of would be arrhythmia. These, of course, can be tacky, fast arrhythmias, or brady, slow arrhythmias. Uh, It's true that the majority of acute MI patients will demonstrate some sort of arrhythmia. Uh, They may be transient during the procedure in the cath lab, uh, it can be as simple as transient bradycardia or a short accelerated idioventricular rhythm, AIVR, um, which is a benign reperfusion rhythm. But the majority of, of patients will have some derangement of their rhythm at some point in their course. Uh, however, what you really need to be uh, to identify is complete heart block in the case of slow rhythms and VT uh, in the case of a fast rhythm. Um, VT versus AIVR can be confusing uh, because they are both wide complex and fast. AIVR is typically relatively slow, say 90 to 120 beats per minute, and as a rule is hemodynamically well tolerated. In contradistinction, VT is typically faster, let's say greater than 150 beats per minute, minute, and typically not well tolerated. Uh, After that, the last category of, of complications are the non-myocardial uh, complications, a so random collection of things that we can't afford to forget about. Um, uh, there are a few things that can happen commonly, uh, like pericarditis, either acute or late, uh, in the case of Dressler syndrome with an um, uh, immune reaction six weeks later. Thromboembolism uh, should be on your radar particularly in a case of a large anterior MI where you may have LV thrombus formation. And then finally, uh, bleeding complications. So if this is a patient that has had PCI, typically that would be excess site bleeding. And if it's a patient like this one treated with lytics, uh, they, of course, can bleed pretty
0: much anywhere. Okay, so that's a really helpful framework. So basically, we want to think about mechanical complications, ruptured, including papillary muscle rupture, uh, VSD or free wall rupture versus non-ruptured mechanical complications such as RV infarct, uh, cardiogenic shock from a severely depressed EF, and outflow obstruction. In addition to mechanical complications, we want to think about arrhythmias, attacky so tachy and bradyarrhythmias, and non-myocardial complications um, such as pericardial complications, thromboembolism, and bleeding. So that's a really helpful way to organize all of those. So for this particular patient coming in with an inferior STEMI, what specific complications are you anticipating in the back of your mind?
1: So as we said earlier, she is at risk for all the classic ruptured complications, such as ruptured papillary muscle, VSD, or free wall rupture, given that she's older, she's female, she has a history of hypertension, this is her first MI with a relatively late presentation. She's an inferior MI, and so for her, I would also be thinking strongly about RV infarct, and I'd be worried about the possibility of complete heart block.
0: So one interesting tidbit that we received from EMS is that the administration of nitrates decreased her blood pressure precipitously. So what does that tell you? This
1: should get you thinking about RV infarct particularly uh, in, this, in the setting of inferior MI. That scenario is a classic question set up on the boards. This is generally thought to happen because a weakened rV is very preload dependent, and nitrates will drop the preload to the heart in practice. however, I would say nitrates can really drop the pressure of just about anyone who uh, may be dry uh so this this is a clue that it's an rV infarct, but it may also just be a sign that the patient needs volume. gotcha,
0: okay. So, Jared, before you were to walk into her room, what things are you already thinking about or looking for on the exam of the post-MI patient?
1: So, as we touched on a bit earlier, there are a few key physical exam findings that can help sort out MI complications. Obviously, auscultation is important. Any murmur post-MI needs to be immediately explained, Uh, and this highlights the importance of getting a baseline exam so that you know if it's a new murmur. Uh, The JVP exam is really important, particularly in conjunction with a lung exam. And I also really like a good pulse exam. So a cool, clamped-down patient with
0: difficult-to-feel or thready pulses uh, is likely in shock. Okay. So upon arrival, this patient is tachycardic to the one-teens. Her blood pressure is 85 over 60, respiratory rate of 24, and her oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. Her exam is notable for an elderly woman in mild distress with appropriate mental status, tachycardia with a regular rhythm, a normal S1 and S2, but an audible S3, no murmurs, jugular venous distension to about 12 centimeters of water, clear lungs, and lukewarm extremities. So Jared, to you, what is most relevant about that particular exam?
1: Okay, the first thing is to recognize that this is a patient uh, that is in trouble and likely in shock. I think if you recognize that and start thinking about it, uh, you're on the right track. You don't have to have all the answers right away. Uh, low blood pressure and tachycardia post-MI as a patient in shock until proven otherwise. And we need to be thinking about the causes. In terms of the exam, um, there are some things here that, will, that are going to help you differentiate Uh, First, the the presence of hypotension, clear lungs, an elevated JVP, and an S3, uh, those all go along with RV infarction. Remember that if it's a left-sided pathology, uh, the lungs should be involved in that as well. So you may have elevated JVP and hypotension from a left-sided pathology, but the lungs are caught in that circuit too, and so you'd expect to hear some pulmonary edema or crackles on exam. Uh, another key uh, point is that there was no murmur reported and no thrill. and This will kind of lower on your concern uh, on your list of concerns, MR or VSD, and uh, the fact that she's lukewarm um, but mentating means she's probably sort of tipping tipping over into
0: cardiogenic shock. Okay, that's really helpful. So a bedside echo is performed, and her LV ejection fraction is reduced to 40% with infra-posterior hypokinesis but her RV systolic function is severely reduced concerning for an RV infarction. So Jared, I just wanted to briefly ask you um, about RV infarction. So who gets these? What are the clinical features, and how should we manage them when we recognize that as the acute issue? So RV infarction as an isolated
1: entity is rare. Uh, This is usually RV involvement in the setting of an inferior MI that's also affecting the inferior left ventricle. And that combination of of RV infarct in the setting of an inferior MI is common, maybe 30 to 50 percent of all inferior MIs. Uh, this makes sense because the RV is supplied primarily by the right coronary artery, um, which is the artery involved in inferior MIs most typically. Uh, the EKG can give you some clues. Uh, if you see Very prominent elevation in lead 3 compared to lead 2. That's a clue that suggests RCA more than left circumflex, and it also suggests RV involvement. If you see elevations in V1, that's also suggestive of right-sided involvement. And then the clinical uh, presentation is the classic triad of hypotension, elevated JVP, and yet clear lungs. So management like all MIs, involves prompt reperfusion first and foremost. After that, it's largely supportive. So aggressive fluids, avoid beta blockers, as you should for any patient in shock, and avoid nitrates uh, to preserve preload to the RV. Mechanical support is possible with right-sided Impella, Protec Duo, even VA ECMO, or other other means. Uh, but this is controversial. Uh, RV infarct does portend a worse prognosis. However, as a rule, the patient gets through the acute
0: event and the RV function does improve. Okay. So with our patient, you decide to give her IV fluids and her blood pressure improves. And she does well overnight. Before rounds the next morning, you review her telemetry and you note that she has periods of bradycardia due to a second degree Mobitz type 2 AV block. Over the course of the morning, she develops transient asymptomatic complete heart block with a narrow complex junctional escape rhythm into 50s. So, Jared, how does the location of the infarct impact the likelihood and type of the development of conduction abnormalities?
1: So, the boards and clinical pearl here is that complete heart block is much more common with inferior infarcts compared to anterior infarcts. However, It is much more likely to resolve
0: in inferior infarcts compared to anterior infarcts, where it's more likely to be permanent. Okay, so then which patients should get permanent pacemakers between anterior infarcts or inferior infarcts?
1: So in this case, you would want to observe if she's stable enough to do so, given that it's it's an inferior infarct and you expect that her complete heart block may well recover. In anterior infarcts, the complete heart block... Uh, you're anticipating that that's going to be permanent and you may move more swiftly to provide pacing. Of course, if they're unstable from bradycardia, you may have to pace them regardless. Uh, however, in this, uh, this setting of an inferior infarct, if you can avoid permanent pacing, that would obviously be preferable. The mechanism here is thought to be vagal tone, ischemia, and edema at the level of the AV node for inferior infarcts, uh, versus infarction and direct injury to the infranodal conduction system
0: for anterior infarcts. Okay, so the bottom line is that inferior infarcts are more likely to cause heart block that is temporary. Anterior infarcts are more likely to cause heart block that is permanent. So she remains in the CCU for closer monitoring. Her heart block thankfully resolves. Three days later, you're preparing to transfer her to the floor when you are called to evaluate her for complaints of shortness of breath. You walk into the room and you see that she's tachycardic, hypotensive, and sitting up in bed acutely dysmic. So Jared, what is your differential in this scenario?
1: So this is, this is a very concerning situation, isn't it? Uh, particularly at this time window, three days post infarction. Uh, You'd definitely be concerned about mechanical complications, specifically acute MR, VSD, or even free wall rupture.
0: Okay, so clinically, how do we differentiate acute MR from a VSD or impending free wall rupture?
1: Remember, any new murmur must be explained immediately in the post-MI patient. This is why documenting a baseline exam is crucial. So the classic difference will be that acute MR due to papillary muscle rupture will lead to respiratory distress. The patient will want to sit bolt upright in bed. The chest x-ray will show pulmonary edema. Conversely, VSD typically has hypotension without respiratory distress and the patient prefers lying flat. On exam, the VSD murmur tends to be louder with a thrill An MR murmur may be absent because of rapid equilibration uh, between the LV and the LA in severe MR. The timing for a VSD is usually late, three to five days into the MI. With acute papillary muscle rupture, it will be the same, but remember, you can have acute MR from ischemic MR and papillary muscle dysfunction that occurs earlier in the MI course. Papillary muscle rupture is more common in inferior or posterior MIs in the case of a dominant circumflex, and this is because the posterior medial papillary muscle has a single blood supply, whereas the anterolateral papillary muscle has a dual blood supply. Uh, VSDs are roughly equal between inferior and anterior MIs. So if you have an acute VSD or acute papillary muscle rupture, you need to call surgery immediately. Both entities do better with early or immediate operative management. Um, In real-life clinical practice, you'll see a fair bit of variability in this, uh, particularly around the timing of treatment of VSDs, but the default should be early operative management.
0: Okay, so this was a pretty complex case with a variety of different complications, including arrhythmias and mechanical rupture. So, Jared, what do you think are the key points that house staff should remember about the possible complications of myocardial infarctions? So, number one, remember that complications can come in several
1: flavors. Mechanical, either ruptured or unruptured, electrical, and non-myocardial. If an MI patient isn't doing well, you need to recognize it and think through those causes. Number two, most acute MIs are not hypotensive the patient is hypotensive, make sure you can explain why. Number three, all new murmurs must be explained immediately. We've said that a few times already. Uh, remember, you have to have a baseline exam in order to know if it is indeed a new murmur. So the baseline exam is important. And number four, remember the few key clinical and exam features that
0: can differentiate mechanical complications. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts, Dr. O'Leary. This was a terrific overview of the approach to recognizing and managing complications of MI that I'm sure our residents will find very helpful before rotating into CVICU. Thank you all for being here today, and we really hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thanks, Jared. Thank you, Emma.